This is uh, Exodus chapter 30, 17 and following. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of the meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in the water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with the water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. Thank you. We have uh, been working on a series about the tabernacle. And we've talked about time and again and shared that the prominence of the tabernacle and the Scriptures demands that we uh, look at it and look at it from the lens of the New Testament. We've said before that Chuck Misra said, borrowing a quote from him, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so we're looking through the lens of the whole counsel of God's Word to see the types in the tabernacle, the examples in the tabernacle that point to Christ's redemptive work on the cross and the journey after entering into a relationship with him through the work of the cross to an intimate fellowship with him as uh, typified by the, by the uh, tabernacle and the holy place and the most holy place within the tabernacle. Now when we uh, walk into the tabernacle, and we talked about it before, there's one way in and that gate is always faced toward the east. And so you're, you're seeing it up there on the screen behind me. And that eastern gate represents, of course, that there's one way to God, and that's through His Son, Jesus. The Bible says there that uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. And then the first place that we see, and the first stop we make when we enter into the tabernacle, would be the, uh, the bronze altar. And you'll remember that last week we were talking about there are seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. The first one you encounter is the bronze altar, and the bronze altar is a picture of the cross. And my goodness... The, what, what we saw there in the symbolism of that altar is just incredible. So we won't go back there again or visit there again, but that's the first place. In, 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 to enter into a relationship with God through His Son Jesus, the way of the cross is the only way. The way of the cross is the entry. The way of the cross is the gate. The way of the cross is the door. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the door. So that bronze altar typifies Christ's redemptive work on the cross on our behalf, where we're justified before God through faith in His Son. The next thing we come to that we talked about last week, and we're going to finish up, this is part two of the bronze labor. We went through the part, part one last week and weren't able to finish it. So Lord willing, we're going to go through part two this morning, and this is the bronze labor, and that's the next place on the, on the journey toward the holy place and, of course, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. You'll see it by the arrow pointing there that it's positioned between the, the tent of the meeting and the uh, bronze altar. And there's a reason for that. We talked about that last week. That once you get in and we're justified, then the bronze altar is symbolic of being sanctified. 
We've talked about before time and again that in salvation God seeks us, but in sanctification we seek Him. The tide's turned. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. He who comes to Him must believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So once the relationship is established, and that happens at the bronze altar, then the fellowship that we enjoy with the Lord is dependent upon what happens at the labor. And we talked about the fact that there's, we looked at everything and we tran- we, we've, got a, we've got it all in C's. The first is the configuration that it is between the altar and the tent. The tabernacle, a place of meeting, is where it's placed positionally. And it must be because until the cleansing takes place at the altar, there's no use in ongoing cleansing at the labor. We talked about the location and how important that is. We talked about the fact that at this labor, it has nothing to do with my state. It has, it has, I mean, it has everything to do with my state before God, not my standing. My state, not my standing, is dealt with at the bronze labor. In other words, I'm a child of God by the time I get there. I've already trusted in Christ and His redemptive work on the cross on Calvary. And when I get there, my relationship is what's dealt with at the labor. We're already in by that time. And then we looked at the place of intimate fellowship and intimate communion, which is inside the holy place and beyond that, the most holy place where the tent was. And so in between the cross and moving into an intimate place of communion with the Lord, we have to encounter and go by and wash at the bronze laver. All right, so we saw the position of it last week. We saw the composition of it last week that it was made of all brass. And brass in the Scripture speak of judgment. When you see brass in the Scripture, it means judgment. And so the whole of the, of the, whole of the labor is made of brass. And we've to, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 and 32, we'll not go there, but we'll mention it this morning. And we're always trying to be faithful to give this instruction when we take the Lord's Supper. That if we judge our sin as a believer, it saves God the problem of having to judge it. That when the Lord reveals to us sin, habitual sin or known sin in our life, we're to deal with it. We're to take the washing. We're to confess it before Him. Because He reveals it to us not in order to acquire a relationship with God, but in order to move into deeper fellowship with God. And so this is what happens at the bronze labor. This is what happens at the Lord's Supper. We do the Lord, we have participate in the Lord's Supper in general on the first month, uh, the first day of the month of this church. And we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we read the narrative and we talk about it being a family meal. We talk about it being for believers and we emphasize the need and the glorious instruction of the Lord to say, you know what? If there's unconfessed sin in your life right now, if, there, if you're harboring bitterness or unforgiveness towards somebody, if there's some habit, some personal sin that maybe nobody knows about except you and God, now is the time to deal with it. If you judge it, it'll save God from having to judge it. God's long-suffering and God's patient, but He does judge His people. Not in final judgment for heaven or hell. That's not the issue here. We've, we've escaped the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. Praise His holy name. But He will judge it in this life if we keep on messing and gomming with it. That's South Georgia for playing with it. And so... Here we are with the need to judge it. So the bronze, the brass speaks of judgment. The contents, we talked about that from Exodus 30 verse 18. He said, you shall put water in it. So we looked at the composite, we looked at the configuration where it was located. We looked at the composition. It's all of brass which speaks of judgment. We look at the contents which is water. 
He said, you'll fill it with water. See, at the bronze altar, the blood purchased the relationship. But at the labor, the water washes for fellowship. See, we've already been through the blood. The altar is behind us. The bronze altar is behind us. We've moved in. We have a relationship purchased by the substitutionary, atoning, all-sufficient death of Jesus Christ on the cross. God took out His wrath and the penalty for our sin on the perfect substitute, which was His Son. The only one who was qualified to die for our sins did indeed die for our sins. And by having put our faith and trust in Him, righteousness is imputed or credited to the believer, not through works, but by grace, through faith. Hallelujah! And once we get in and we're saved, the blood purchased the relationship, but there is a need for a continual washing for the fellowship. We talked about water in the Bible and how there are two pictures and types of the water in the Bible. One is it's used when it's used for drinking, it's a type of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that out of your belly, from John chapter 7, shall flow rivers of living water. And Jesus went on to say that He was speaking of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been had come because He had not yet been glorified. He says, as soon as I ascend to the Father's right hand, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He'll be in you, with you, and upon you. He will equip you for holy living and for service. He will testify of Me. He will direct you and empower you to do what only I can do through you, through Him. And so when it's talked about drinking, it's a type of the Holy Spirit. But when it's talked about cleansing, do you remember what type it is? When it's talked about cleansing, what's the picture? When you see the water in cleansing in the Bible, does anybody remember what that leads to? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So when it's spoken of in drinking, it's the type of the Holy Spirit. When it's spoken of in cleansing, it's a type of the Word of God. Vance Havner said this, and it is so true. I heard somebody say this yesterday, but the quote's from Vance Havner. It says this, Either sin will keep you away from this book, or this book will keep you away from sin. That's absolutely true. There's a need for cleansing. There's a need for washing. Let's prove it scripturally. Let's look at Psalm 119. And we're going to get out your Bible, because we're going to do a Bible drill. I mean, we're going to go all over the place this morning. But uh, get out your Bible and go, if you will, to Psalm 119. Now this is, we're just going to skip like a rock skipping over a pond and just look at some of the examples of this, this need for cleansing. And the cleansing agent, the cleansing agent is the Word of God. Let's look at Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. It says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's the cleansing agent of God. It is the, it is the washing agent of God. Look at Ezekiel. Turn right and go to Ezekiel. And let's look at chapter 36. 36. We're going to look at verse uh, 25. Excuse me, 24 through 27. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 30, uh, 27. It says, For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and bring you into your own land. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take a heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's nothing more than the Word of God. I will cleanse you with my word. Look at John 15.3. Let's go to the New Testament. Turn way right and go to John 15.3. Look what the Lord says here. John 15.3 says this. Jesus said, You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. I've washed you with my word. If I say that something is, it is. Can I say this parenthetically? Which means I think in parentheses. Can I say this to you? And we've said this time and again, but please don't forget this. When your feelings don't line up with the truth, go with the truth. It is often that your feelings don't line up with the truth or my feelings. My emotions are not trustworthy, nor are yours. Go with the Word when there's a conflict between the two. And so the Word of God is the cleansing agent. Look at John 17, 17. Turn right just a little bit over there and let's look at this. Jesus said, this is a big 10-cent religious word. It says this, Sanctify them, which means set them apart. Set them apart by your truth. Your Word is truth. Do you know what sets us, sets us apart as Christians from every other claim to know God or to go after God? Do you know what sets us apart? This. It's what we believe. It's the Word that we believe. We stake our future and our eternity on the fact that this Word is accurate. We stayed in the hotel room this weekend. And I just couldn't help but notice. And I always go check and see if there's a Bible in there. And I pulled it out and I saw the Bible and there was a Bible in there. And you know what right beside it was? A demonic book called the Book of Mormon. And the reason it is because the hotel chain is owned by Marriott. And the guy Marriott that started the Marriott chain is a Mormon. And so the, we had fiction and truth right beside one another. And I told a Mormon friend of mine one time, I said, here's the bottom line and this is it. A guy was witnessing to a Mormon. I said, you've got the Bible and you've got the Book of Mormon. And you've got to make a decision. Either you're going to believe the Bible and throw this book away, or either you're going to believe the, Mor the Book of Mormon and throw this away. He said, no, no, they can complement each other. I said, it couldn't be more polar opposite. Could not be more polar opposite. This is the word of the living God. And when Jesus Christ says you're clean by putting your faith and trust in Him, you know what, Alex? You're clean. Amen? Hallelujah. This is okay. Now let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, look up now and hang with me especially. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 5. You know this scripture. Paul's instruction about the husband to the wife, the love that we're supposed to express to her, how we're to nurture and care for the wife. Look what he says here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. Why? That He might set her apart, sanctify, and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word that He might present her to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. In this fellowship right now, we are going through with every man that can to work it out. Some of us are praying about it now. 
a verse-by-verse study in the book of Romans. The five major doctrines of the Christian faith. The book of Romans is the constitution of the Christian faith. It's the Magna Carta. It's the declaration of dependence of the Christian faith. It is a fundamental, foundational, doctrinal book that has practical application at the end of it or the second half of it. And the encouragement is, is that once you begin to learn this and you get rooted in this, the expectation is, guys, is we need to sit down with our precious wives and teach them what we're learning. And then learn, and then, as pastor of your home, teach that to the rest of your family. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2 that young men need to be sound in doctrine, showing integrity with doctrine. And a young man, as defined by that Scripture, is 12 or 13 years old. How many 12 or 13 year olds do you know of that show doctrinal integrity? Well, you know what? In this fellowship, that's going to change. That is going to change. That must change. That is a priority. That will change. That's what we're going to do by God's grace. Because I'm telling you right now, if you don't think this secular society is at the throat of your children, you've got another thing coming. What sets us apart is what we believe. The Christian faith, the Christian practice in the body of Christ is constantly in need of reformation. There is a day in, day out, washing. If you do not take a bath for several days, you'll go to smelling. And if you do not abide in God's Word, you will stink before Him. Husbands, the number one Bible teacher to your wife ought to be you. Wash her. Cleanse her. Get up together with her. Gather together. Mark out some special time when it's you and mama and you and your grandmama, the one that's a grandmama maybe by now, or whatever, or everything in between. And let's make sure that we get the water to each other. And let's wash and go to washing. And let that just flow over us. And then let it flow over to our families. And then maybe it might flow over to our neighborhoods and maybe communities and the other areas where the ebb and flow of living. And then we begin to be seen as salt and light like we're supposed to be in the first place. Let me ask you a question. The devil's not sovereign. He doesn't know everything. Only God does. But he's smart enough to know that if he can keep you from this, he will render you powerless. And you are fodder for his temptations. Fodder. You want to go do business with him and get cocky and arrogant? Self-confident? You are headed for trouble. Headed for trouble. But if you are rooted and grounded in this, it'll ensure victory. Praise His name. Amen. Let's wash. Let's wash our families. Let's go to washing, men. Let's go to washing. Let's wash. Let's wash. Let's make it a priority. Let me tell you something right now. Guys, if your children grow up to be, uh, grow up and the the Word is of little or no importance to to them, more than likely, the reason that is is because it was little or no importance to you. you reverence God's Word and you crack it open and you go after Him and you go after His heart and you teach them to do the same and you apply and you, and, you, and you muse on it and you meditate on it and you memorize it and you do everything you can to model it and teach it in front of them. It's not going to happen automatically. It is an intentional act by families to do that. And the world will come against you with your schedule and everything else that can happen. And do everything you can. I've given examples of this, and I probably, I guess I'll do it now.
family, in my home, in my church, and in my household, there is room for the head. And it's no easy thing. You've got to make some adjustments. I, I had everybody on that row, except Mom, Grandma and Grandpa over here thought I'd lost my mind. I'm glad y'all kept your seat. Had to make some adjustments. We have to make some adjustments and say, hold on just one second. Hold on one second. You get the best of what I've got. And if you get the best of what I've got, God will supernaturally make more of the rest of what you've got. I believe it was Martin Luther who said, on an average day I spend three hours a day in prayer and Bible study before the Lord. Three hours. First part of the day. On a day when I'm particularly busy and jam-packed, I spend four. Did you get that? That's somebody who has an appreciation for how big God is and how little and puny we are without Him. Amen? We've got to stop at the labor. We've got to stop at the labor and take some washing there. Look at John chapter 13. Go with me over here. John chapter 13. Brother Mike Lucanot's nowhere. He knows where I'm going right here. We talked about this a little bit this week. Look at John chapter 13. We went there just a little bit uh, last week. But I want you to look carefully because there's something here, ooh, my goodness alive, that will just illuminate the meaning of the labor for us. It will give us an understanding greater than we've ever had. It does. It has me about the labor. This business of sanctification, this business of washing by the Word of the living God. Look what happens. John chapter 13 you know the story. You're very familiar with it. Jesus Christ is getting prepared for His trip to the cross. It's looming on the horizon. He comes and He washes the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. Look what it says here. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, I'm reading the verse 2, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all th things into His hands, excuse me, and that He had come from God, and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, What am I, do what am I I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash your if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. No part with me. You know what that word means, really? You have no destiny with me. That's what that word means. It means destiny. You have no future with me. In other words, do you want to walk with me? Do you want to have fellowship with me? Have you come have you hung around me long enough to, to this that you value this relationship with me above all the other ones that you have? Have you come to that? Is it clicking with you that I am not a claim among others to God? That I am God's literal Son? That I am the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come? Have you come to know and believe that I am a Christ, the Son of the living God? I have words of eternal life. Life is found in no other, but praise God, it's found in me. Have you come to value me? Because if you don't let me wash you, you have no destiny with me. That's what that word means. Watch this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only. Don't you love it? I, I, we can, every one of us can identify with Peter. But also my hands and my feet. You know, he goes, he, Peter's going to go overboard. You can count on that. You know what the Lord says to him? He said, listen. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed 
Look at that word bathed. Needs only to wash his feet. But is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. There are two underlying Greek words that are used to translate bathed and washed in verse 10. In verse 10, when Jesus said, He who is luo, that is L-O-U-O, is the English spelling of the Greek word used for that. Luo needs only to nipto, N-I-P-T-O, his feet, but is completely clean. And you say, why is that important? Let me tell you why that's important. Luo, L-O-U-O, which is bathed in verse 10, means washed entirely. Let me tell you what that has to do with the, the bronze labor. When the priest would come in and he was set apart to be ordained, according to Exodus chapter 29, verse 4, you can write that down and maybe look at it later. Exodus 29, verse 4, upon ordination, ordination, upon ordination, here's what happened. He would enter into the gate, he's at the bronze altar, and upon his ordination, he would be bathed from head to toe. I don't know if they put up some curtain or how they did it, but he would be washed by somebody else from head to toe, probably another priest. That's symbolic of salvation. See, you know what? Hey, hey, do you know what? I didn't clean myself. Jesus cleaned me. Hey, I, you didn't, hey, if you're washed by the blood of the Lamb this morning, you didn't wash yourself. He washed you. You can't take credit for anything, and neither can I. All we provided was the sinner. He gave the faith. He provided the lamb, and He washed us white as snow. Hallelujah! 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 No work of man involved in that. The moment you touch something to wash you, it messes up the whole type because it's a works-based salvation, and the Bible knows of no such thing. He washes. That word luo means that. It means to take a bath. Okay? He said, Peter, you're saved already, buddy. You know, we don't have to do that again. You know, listen, the moment that you repent toward God and put faith in His Son, that moment, that moment, the vilest offender who truly believes, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Hallelujah. Amen. We're running around the building. Let's do it. We're going to do that one Sunday. I'm going to shock every one of you and we're going to run around this building. Isn't that wonderful? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Alright? That's luo. That's the washing. He said, Peter, we've already luoed you, son. I've already ordained you. I washed you the moment I called you. I gave you the faith to believe in me. Buddy, you are clean. But let me tell you what happened to you, Peter. You've been walking around in this nasty world and you've picked up some dirt on your feet. And you need to be Niptoed. Alright? Luo, entire washing, happens at the bronze altar. Care to guess where Nipto happens? Nipto happens at the labor. Amen? He said, listen, once the priest has been washed, and he gets a priestly garment, and the Bible says we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Righteousness has been imputed to the believer. And then we move over to the labor. And then the Lord says, okay, when you get to the labor, before you go into the Holy of Holies, let me give you some incentive to do this. If you go into the holy place and you don't wash, you'll die. I would think that that would give the priest some incentive to, rem to remember to do that. 
wouldn't you? And so he said, you need to be niptoed. That's what he was saying to Peter. See, this is what Jesus was saying. I've already set you apart. You've already been luoed. You've been washed entirely. Now your hands and feet need to be washed because you've been traversing through this world and you've picked up some stuff. And you're clean as far as positionally you're clean, but you need a practical cleansing. We don't have to go back to the bronze altar. We don't have to go back to the bronze altar. That happened one time. Jesus Christ died once for all and now has ascended to the Father's right hand and sat down down at the majesty on high having purged according to Hebrews chapter 1 all of our sins hallelujah you've already been lip-toed but now you need to be nip-toed I want you to wash your hands and your feet that's what he was saying to him see lip lip luo I'm sorry luo luo cleansed the sinner nip-toe cleanses the saint the sinner gets cleansed at the bronze altar. That's luo. The saint gets cleansed at the bronze labor. That's nipto. And so this is why we do the cleansing. This is why we give the instructions at the Lord's Supper. It is God unveiling to you and I from heaven this wonderful opportunity to judge habitual sin in our lives, to repent and get rid of it so we can move on to deep fellowship with Him. It is a nip-toe washing. He said, you, got, you can have it. I'll open this up to you. You can have it. Carte blanche, you can have it. Hallelujah. In... At the bronze altar, another washes from head to toe. Salvation. At the bronze labor, we wash ourselves. Fellowship maintained or restored. That's what that means. Fellowship maintained or restored. What does First John 1 John 1.9 say? Confess our sins. I've got this memorized because I probably need it worse than anybody in here. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse us from what we know about and then He'll cleanse us from what we hadn't yet revealed to us because we're not ready to handle it. Do we serve a great God or what? This is not about religion. It's about a relationship. And the labor is about a relationship. You want to move on into intimate fellowship? You've got to stop at the labor. So what have we looked at? And I have to go back and look because I'm old. I'm getting there. We've looked at the fact that it's configuration. We've looked at its composition. It was made of all brass, speaking of judgment. We've looked at its contents, the water. We've looked at what the, what the Bible says about water and the contents and the fellowship and relationship. Now we look at the caution. We look at the caution. I want you to, I want you to listen to this carefully now. Listen to this carefully and we'll wrap it up. At the gate, the sinner is in danger. But at the labor, the saint is in danger. At the, at the gate, at the gate, before the luo happens, before, the sinner is in danger. But at the labor, the saint is in danger. I beg you, I implore you, daily wash with the Word. And daily wash others that are under your care with the Word. And daily Go to it yourself. I dare say that my time in the Word devotionally exceeds my time in the Word in sermon preparation. That might make you nervous. I don't know. But my time in the Word devotionally 
is more than my time in the Word for sermon preparation. And, I've, and this is my conviction. I don't believe my time for sermon preparation means anything unless I've been with Jesus myself. See, the sinner's in danger before he's cleansed, he, he, the luo. Once the luo happens, the saint comes to the laver and he's in danger. Why you say, well, Brother Lindsay, why is he in danger? Well, according to Exodus chapter 30, verse 21, we just read it. What's going to happen to him and what can he expect if he goes by that labor? He gets excited about his activity. He's saved. Hallelujah. He knows all the ten cent words. He's got everybody fooled into thinking he's the greatest, most happening Christian there is. And he gets so excited about his activity, he gets all caught up in it and goes right by that labor and forgets to wash. And before he knows it, enters the holy place, which is signifying a place of intimacy with God. And he hasn't stopped by the bronze labor. What happens to him? He's dead. If I had to say this, I believe this to be abundantly true. If there's one thing that characterizes the church in America today, and I love the church. I'm pro-church. Jesus is pro-church. So line me up with Him. He loves His bride. Amen. But if there's one thing that characterizes the church today, it's a loss of any fear of God. A loss of any fear of God. Oh, He's a lovey-dovey God. Yeah, He is. We celebrate that. I'm the one that asked and prayerfully asked that we sing. We love Him because He first loved us this morning. I want that embedded in the life and witness of this church. The only reason any of us can assert that we legitimately love God is why? Because He first loved us. He took the initiative. And He is a loving God. We celebrate that. But I want you to know something too. God still judges unrepentant sin in the life of a believer. He still does that. We talked about last week. You can be a courtyard saint. You can, you can just go around the courtyard and never move on into a place of intimacy where God wants you to live in a place of intimacy as evidenced or as typified by the holy place. You can enjoy the same light that everybody else enjoys. The Bible says that God causes it to rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. The same sunlight can illuminate you that it does a non-believer. And you can just wander around in that courtyard. Just wander around in there. And Spencer and I were talking about last week. And another type of that is wandering around in the wilderness and just not moving in, griping and fussing and complaining about everything you're going through, downsizing God, seeing Him underneath your circumstances with you rather than sovereign over them. We can do all of that. We can do every last bit of that and ensure that we never get to a place of intimacy with God. Doesn't mean that when you die, you're not going to go to heaven. I don't mean that. You've already been through the altar. But the labor, this is so important. See, the sinner is in danger at the gate because hell is in the balance. The saint is in the danger at the labor because his life is in peril over the chastening power of God. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We get that on the tape. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens. He disciplines those He loves. Numbers chapter 11. Okay? Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. We're going to go through. Get your Bibles out too. Another Bible drill. Uh, Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. We've got to hurry. Numbers 11, verse 1. According to how big or little you believe God to be. If you believe Him to be little, then you'll be looped into what happened here. What happened here? It says, Now when the people complained 
it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and His anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord turned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Started griping, fussing, and complaining. Nothing suits me. Nothing's going my way. God's little. The circumstances are bigger. He's not in charge. And I'm upset about it. What did he do? His fire of his anger burned against them. And what did he do? He judged some of them through death. Look at um, Numbers 32. Turn to the right. Numbers 32. 3 2. Numbers 32. Numbers 32. Verses 10 and 11. It says, So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from, the 20, from 20 years old and above shall see the land in which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. God judged them for their disbelief. Turn to the right and go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Keep your Bible ready because we're going to take a quick, quick trip here. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. Look what he says here. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the what? Anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Talking to His people. Psalm 74.1 Take a far right turn. Let's go to Psalm 74.1 Psalm 74.1 says, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Psalm 76.7 Turn over maybe probably one page. You yourself, speaking to God, are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are Angry. Oh, you said, well, that's the Old Testament. Okay. 2 Corinthians 5.11. Let's go over there to make a big right-hand turn. 2 Corinthians 5.11. I'm mindful of the time. I really am. I want to get, there, get here, though, because... Um, we'll try to get through the labor today if we can. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says... Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God and also trust are well known to your consciences. Do you know what that speaks of? That speaks of the judgment seat of Christ. That is the judgment for the believer. And he says, recognizing the terror of the Lord, that is the place, the Bema seat, where we will be judged as believers, not based on our belief, not based on our sin, but based on our works since we've been in the body. And Paul characterizes it as a terror in front of the Lord. A terror. We already talked about 1 Corinthians 11, 31 through 32 in judgment of our sin and preparation for the Lord's Supper. Let's look at 1 John 5, 16 and 17. 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Hang with me now and just stay with me for just a minute. And we're about to go over there and eat. John 5, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Look at this, brothers and sisters. But there is sin leading to 
death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. A Christian can continue on in habitual disobedience before a holy God and continue to ignore the labor time and time and time again and try to enter into an intimate fellowship with Jesus. It will not be possible. You will be a courtyard believer and there could come a day when God's patience finally runs out and says, I'm taking you home prematurely. The mirror was made. The labor was made from melted mirrors. Huh. Isn't that something? According to Exodus chapter 38 verse 8, they took the mirrors that they used, they took polished brass and polished it and shined it up so much you could use it as a mirror. They took those mirrors melted them together and they made the labor with the mirrors. And that way when you look down in there to wash, when you look down in there, Alex, to wash and you look down, you saw your real condition before God looking back at you. You know what you saw when you looked down there? You saw not what men think of you. You saw what God thinks of you. Now, He loves you, and positionally, you're righteous, and I'm righteous in, in His Son. That will never change, positionally. But practically speaking, He's looking at us and giving us an assessment of what we look like before a holy God. The Bible says that the silver is for the crucible, and that God takes the dross and takes it and rakes it off the top of it. And we're in the crucible of life. Some of you are in the crucible right now. And the Holy Spirit's managing the flame. We've talked about this before. And He's down there and He's got a flame. He's got a Bunsen burner beneath the crucible. And He's got silver in there, what He's really after. And But inside the silver is some impurities. And He manages that flame, the Holy Spirit does. And He makes it just intense enough so that it doesn't burn off the good stuff. But he makes it hot enough so it takes care of the bad and it all floats to the surface. And when the silversmith knows he's finished, it's when he looks over into the crucible and he takes the dross and takes it off the top and he can see a reflection of himself. This is what God's after. To kill you and I so he can resurrect himself in us. That's the job of the labor. Quickly, it had no covering. All the pieces of the altar, all the pieces of the tabernacle had covering except the labor. No covering for the labor. All the rest of them had pre-described, very meticulous ways to pack it away and get it ready to move. They had covers. By the way, we didn't go to this when we looked at the bronze altar. Guess what color the covering of the bronze altar was? I love this. Purple. Purple. You know why? Because royalty died there. Amen. Hallelujah. But the covering... Over the alt, there's no cover for the bronze. You know why? Because it's always accessible and it's always needed. You always had to get your hands to it. Hey, you, we don't have time enough not to get to it. Hey, we're moving over here. God said the glory cloud is moving 10 miles in that direction. But you know what? Between now and 10 miles, we need cleansing. Every single day, every single step, this thing is accessible. Aren't you grateful for that? And every piece of furniture had prongs to carry it with. You slide a hook in there. Here we go. Every one of them. Every one of them. You, you couldn't touch the furniture. And they had prongs, Mark, on either side. You'd take that pole and put that pole through there and rest it on your shoulder. And we'd all gather together and we would carry it. Except this one. No prongs on this one. You know why? Because he... <coughs> it was the only piece of furniture that demanded constant touch and constant access. 
God said, you've got to get to this. I don't care where I send you. I don't care where you go. I don't care how long it takes to get there. We don't have time to pack it. We can't cover it. Get your hands on it. Everybody come. Touch it. Wash your hands here. You're in need of washing. Oh, saints, wash your hands. It's open. Amen. Hallelujah. I need it moment by moment. The capacity, the dimensions of every piece of furniture are given in the Bible except this one. We got that up there, and that's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. But we have no idea how big it, it, it was. We're not supposed to know. You know why? It's silent on its size because God's grace and mercy is always available to His children. Just suffice it to know, it is enough. There's enough water there. It's always there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was looking, I was at the office the other day, I was looking on my top shelf, or one of my bookshelves over there, and on the top shelf I keep my copies of the Word of God. And they were like, I counted them. I said, let me just count. And there were 17 up there. And I was ashamed, because I thought, ashamed for the fact, I've got 17 different you know, Bibles I've collected over the years. I use this one primarily, but I, I looked up there and I saw that and I said, here's what just tore me to pieces. We have so much access to God's Word, we've taken for granted. And we don't wash anymore. And there are people that don't even have it translated in their language as of right now. God forgive us. God forgive us. Don't get your ships messed up. Don't get your ships messed up. S-H-I-P-S. Don't mess up your ships. The bronze altar is relationship. Ship. Relationship. One time. One washing. Luo. But when you walk through this earth, you're going to pick up some dirt. What did James say about that? Pure religion and undefiled before the Father is to visit widows and orphans in their trouble and to keep oneself what? unspotted from the world. We need a washing. Hey, we're in it, but we're not of it. We've got to go out there in it. And we should be. We should be, because we need to be salt and light out there. That's where they are. But you're going to pick up some stuff when you get there. You're going to pick up some stuff. I don't care who you are. Go home. Wash. Get up. Wash. Go to wash in your family. You just need to wash your hands and your feet. You're already clean. But for goodness sake, let's wash clean. Amen. The blood got you in for relationship, but the water keeps you in fellowship. Hallelujah to his name.